Wally Dent, JW Wally Dent. Like what's your, what do you, what do you really like to go by? I go by Wally. Okay. I mean, I sign everything JW, you know, Wally Dent, but everybody calls me Wally. All right. Mostly everybody. I mean, there's a few people that call me JW, but most people call me Wally. Yeah. Is that your in trouble name? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. If you've been around bourbon long enough, or maybe really not that long, you may have seen the name J.W. Dant. That's because the Dant name is equivalent to bourbon royalty, as it's deeply rooted in its history. But there's another Dant that is wanting to bring his family name back into the distilling business, and that's J.W. Dant, or better known as Wally Dant, from Log Still Distillery. Wally joins the show to talk about his upbringing and how some early career choices he made put him in a fortunate position to start reviving life back into Gethsemane, Kentucky, where he's building his own legacy in the bourbon business. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from me. That's right. I have the ability to think for myself, and I have an idea after I just tasted the Jack Daniels Twice Barreled American Single Malt, a special release. Yeah, so I remember 16 years ago, there were some of the big distillers were looking at the American Single Malt category, kind of hanging their noses at it like, oh, yes, Americans will never be able to get malts off the ground. And all these people were like talking about how barrel finishes were a waste of time and how using multiple grains was a craft whiskey ploy. Well, lo and behold, the entire industry is now doing all of that, with the exception of someone like Four Roses, which does, and Maker's Mark, which, you know, they still do their stave finishes. But most people are experimenting with all of these different techniques from grains and barrels. And I just, I, I would like to go back in time and talk to some of these distillers as they were ripping on craft whiskey, which I will always fully tell a craft distiller if their whiskey is no good, but I am always rooting for them. I root for the craft distillers because I want them to succeed. I want them to create a product that consumers want, a product that's good, mind you, not one that is bought out of charity. And I remember talking to owners of companies, of these large companies, CEOs of these large multi-billion dollar behemoths, and they looked at craft whiskey as a joke. And now all of the distillers are mimicking what the craft distillers were doing 15, 10 years ago. We live in this time of hot takes and told you so's and tweets that don't age well and everything. And I wonder if some of those executives would like to have those things taken back because now they are absolutely copying what the craft distillers created a long time ago. It just goes to show you, if you see a small distiller, don't write them off. Don't write off whatever fancy experiment they're doing, however they're making their whiskey. Do not write off innovation however you see it, as long as they're not just dumping flavoring into a barrel. I mean, they're doing something that's different, and it could change the game. This Jack Daniels twice-barreled single malt is an incredible example of that. It's one, it's a single malt, 
two, it's a barrel finish. And also got Jack Daniels on the label. So there's a whole lot of shit going on with that particular one. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. Hey, I may have other ideas, but until I do, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Click the contact button. And if I like the idea, I'll read it on the air. Till next week. Cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Ryan back in the official Bourbon Pursuit recording head studios right now. And we're going to be talking to somebody that has started to make a lot of waves into the bourbon world. And I've been very excited to be able to talk about this because they have been able to kind of revitalize part of close to Ryan's hometown a little bit where you grew up and had a lot of family adventures way back in the day. I know we were talking before we were on air here about how you and our guest today had some probably tighter connections that he didn't really, really know about. Yeah, it's a quintessential Kentucky conversation. You're related to who by this, by that marriage, this. And yeah, so Mr. Dan, Wally Dantitz here with us. Where the distillery is in New Hope, my family grew up just about 10 miles away in a town called Howardstown. And then also my other family is in Culvertown. So New Hope sits in between Culvertown and Howardstown. And so I'd been around New Hope my entire life, rode four-wheelers through there, hunted deer. To see what's happened there is truly unbelievable and really cool. And I'm excited to hear more of what's going on because I've just kind of been a spectator as I drive through to Christmas holidays or Easter just to see, poke my head, see what what are they building in this field of dreams of New Hope? <laughs> field <laughs> of know? dreams. Yeah. That's kind of what it is. I mean, it's like in New Hope and in Gethsemane, like where this is, it's, it's a little bit outside of our town, like just on the outside edge. But they're building a, a big attraction that people are going to kind of really start gearing their, their yeah, eyes towards. It, it makes sense, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but there's so much history and around that area, not just, you know, with the Dant name, but just moonshining, distilling, 
bootlegging, all the above, the cornbread mafia, all that's kind of around in that whole area. It's such a, it's an awesome place. People there are like some of the genuinely best people you'll ever meet. And it's one of my favorite places in the country. It's just beautiful rolling hills, hollers, hollers far, there farmland. Is. There's a train that runs through it. Mm -hmm. It's everything you can envision of Kentucky is right there in that, that part of the, the state. How many horse farms are there? No horse farms. Well, then they were missing at least one. This is thing. where the this is where the hardworking people are farming. <laughs> They're not trotting around on their fancy horses, you know, on the east side of the state. Where this is where the the blue bloods and made distilling happen. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Let's go ahead and introduce our guest today. Today on the show, we have Wally Dant. He is the president and distiller over at Log Still Distillery. Wally, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thank you. Thank you for having me. We're glad to have you. I think there's a lot of stuff that we're going to be able to dive into, of course, with the name, the history, what you're building and stuff like that. But I think we need to go back and, and roll back the hands of time here and kind of talk about you and your, your adolescence of age and period of kind of growing up. I mean, you grew up in Kentucky, mm -hmm. grew up around that area. Mm -hmm. At what point did you, did you ever notice that like bourbon was really like a, an ingrained part of like your DNA? Like, is there, a, was there a moment that came to you? You know, I, I think for every one of us that are in that Dant lineage, we all grew up with that in our blood. I mean, we didn't never not know, I guess, that bourbon was a part of our family. My grandfather worked at the distillery. His dad worked at the distillery, my great-grandfather, and then all the way back to Joseph Washington Dant. And so we all grew up with that. I mean, we cut our teeth, as my mom would tell me, on, on bourbon, right? So I did the same thing with my kids when they were teething. You use bourbon, that 100-proof stuff, and it numbs the, and then you take a shot yourself and you feel a lot better. Right? <laughs> you both feel better. <laughs> yeah. Deal with the crying for another you know, hour. So, so we, we grew up knowing our full history, right? And understanding our family's place in, in bourbon history. Yeah. It's like, if you look at, I think we were at Limestone or Yellowstone, Limestone branch Yellowstone, and you look at like the, the genealogy tree of like where bourbon kind of like, and it all leads back to like the Dant or the Bean family, you know, like right there at the, the beginning. Talk about how, I guess cool that is, but also like, what have you discovered in this understanding where you came from? Like all the different connections to where bourbon really, I guess, got its start. Ryan, we were talking right before the show, you know, sometimes you look around and make sure I've got my five fingers and five toes because we're all related out there yeah, exactly. in that community. But for us, you know, it's a pretty cool thing to be, if you look at what Limestone Branch has and kind of what they've done for themselves, Steve and Paul, his grandmother and my great-grandfather, because I'm a sixth generation, he's fifth or sixth on the beam side, but we're brother and sister, right? And so we're related on the dance side of things, and now we're connected into the beam side of things through that, that relationship. And there's been a number of those throughout the years in the distilling industry itself. And, you know, we've got Ballards that are a part of our family, and there's used to be an old Ballard bourbon brand a long time ago. And so you begin to look at the history of that particular area, what I call the Catholic migration over from Maryland, right, into Western Virginia before Kentucky was a state. Well, you look at Basil Hayden. Basil Hayden led the first Catholic mission over from Maryland in the first settlement here in, in what was Western Virginia. 
And so, you know, you look at all of those names, Mattingly's, that were all a part of the bourbon growth, bourbon birth in Kentucky. And it's pretty cool just to kind of realize you're, you're a small little place in, in history. It's funny you say that, Catholic migrant, because you, you think about most of Kentucky is not Catholic, but that region from Louisville down to Nelson County, Florida yeah. and Marion Holy County Cross, and yeah. LaRue County, it's all like Catholic pocket right there. Holy How did that happen? At least as I understood it. So Maryland, which is Maryland, right? Uh, if you look at the name of that. So that was kind of a, an enclave for a bunch of English Catholics that came over that were because the English Catholics and the Protestant Catholics didn't really didn't Anglicans didn't really get along, right? So there's a lot of quite frankly, death on either end of that for a number of years. And so a lot of them said, hey, we're tired of it. We're going to move over to America. There was a place called Maryland, right? A number of them settled in. Back in the 1700s, mid-1700s, mid to late 1700s after the war, Maryland had some things that they were doing relative to taxation that the Catholics didn't particularly care for. And so they said, hey, we're going to go and move. And so Basil Hayden left and brought the first group of Catholics over into central Kentucky, brought them down through Pittsburgh, down the Ohio River, and into what was then Fort Pottinger, which is literally on the edge of our property in Gethsemane, as kind of the original fort where they settled and then moved out into the countryside. And so there was three kind of distinct groups that came over. Our family was in that second group of or wave of, of Catholics to come over. The ironic thing is, is, you know, you think of America as, you know, fairly big and Catholics are, you know, you had a big Irish immigration, right? And all of those sort of things. But like Bardstown was a third diocese, Catholic yeah. diocese in the United States. So Philadelphia was one. And then I can't remember the, uh, it might've been Washington or New York somewhere, or maybe even Boston but at least three dioceses. And so you look at that and you say, hey, for being in the middle of nowhere to have (laughs) like the largest Catholic diocese, you know, in in the United States at the time, or one of the largest, I mean, there was just a whole migration. And so I've lived in Nashville for 22 some odd years. So, you know, one of the things that I noticed, you find a Church of Christ on every corner in Nashville, right? Well, you come to central Kentucky and you find a Catholic church in every single town, or if it's a bigger town, you see one almost on every other corner. It's just one of those things that when you grew up in, whether it was Louisville or Bardstown or all points in between, the Catholic church was a, a big part of the community life. I didn't know I was going to get schooled on Catholicism history there. It, it all comes back to... I was going to say, I went to, I went to Catholic school for eight years of my life. I didn't even know all that. So And we're, we're, still, <laughs> we're still keeping the tradition alive. Picnics and yeah. you know, drinking at picnics and yeah, Saint, Catholic events yeah, and all that. Yeah. It's a uh, good stuff. Always a good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's the, it's the nice thing that we can always say, well, yeah, we do drink and we do sin. So, yes. <laughs> that's go. right. Yeah, it, one balances the other. One balances Let's the go other. go to confession. Right. Yeah. Everything will be good. <laughs> I want to kind of go back to, again, your, your childhood a little bit, where you've discovered there's something in bourbon there. You, know, you said you had some, your, your lineage, did your father work at the distillery or anything in the industry or no? Yeah, so no, my grandfather on in our side of the family was the last to work in the distillery. So, so when at our property at Gethsemane, that was an original, it changed hands a number of different times, right? So it began with Orrin Parker in the 1860s. So we're DSP number 47, which the government gave us back that number. So there's not a whole lot of 
distilleries that are younger than us. So a change stands from him to head to a head to uh, minor case beam. You guys know that story from Stephen, from yeah, Steve, right? Yeah. And then from there, actually, J.B. Dant of Yellowstone fame bought that property, closed it during Prohibition, reopened after Prohibition with my great-grandfather, so it was called Danton Head Distillery. And then following that, he sold it in 1940, to what was then National Distillers, who then sold it to United Distillers, which was an Arm & Hammer company. Arm & Hammer, United Distillers, also then owned the original J.W. Dant distillery that they sold in 1943, which is about six miles down the road. And so it became, because it was the newer facility that my great-grandfather built, they moved all the production over from the old Dant distillery to that quote-unquote new Dant distillery, and that continued to operate through 1962. My dad was born in 1940 on distillery property, born and raised on that. He eventually left and went to Notre Dame. My grandfather continued to work there until 1962 when they closed it. They moved all the production either over to Buffalo Trace, because Shenley owned it at that point in time. So Ancient Age was the old Buffalo Trace, right? So they, they owned the Ancient Age distillery, and they also owned the Bernheim plant in Louisville. And so uh, my grandfather transferred up to Bernheim and continued to work there until 1974 when he retired. So, you know, we grew up all around that distilling side through my, through, certainly through my grandfather. My great-grandfather worked at National Distillers after he sold his business and worked there until he retired. And so for us, it was kind of a no big deal sort of thing. It was, you know, this, right. was, in, this was... It was just this, the business back who then. we it's, were. Right? There weren't that's, podcasts. That's, what I, it, right. that's you know, what I tell everybody. I grew up around this shit. No one cared about it for the, you know... <laughs> well, you know, you know what happened in the mid-70s and then through the 80s, for the most part. I mean, bourbon was just out of favor, right? And while they continued to make it, it's not what it is today. I mean, certainly, as you guys know, I mean, it's, it was just, you know, something that, that we had and people had a, a job and they did their job in the, the distilling industry. My dad worked for UPS. He bled brown and moved around. <laughs> so every three years we moved with him. And so whether it was Indiana twice, Michigan, New Jersey, Georgia, I graduated high school down in Georgia. You know, there were five of us kids. I was the oldest of five. And so when he made the move back up to Kentucky, so my dad ran air operations for UPS. When he moved back up into Kentucky, which was 1984 sort of time frame, I was already in college at Purdue. He stayed here. So I'm like my youngest brother, the youngest of all of us by a long shot. He's like, he's like 18 years uh, younger than I am. It was one of those, oh my God, moments for my mom. You know, she, <laughs> but Jonathan never had the life that we had, right? We moved around. Practically, and while he was born in Georgia, he was raised in, in Louisville, never moved, went to St. X, just like my dad went to St. X, you know, so everybody in Louisville, well, where'd you go to high school? Yeah, St. X or Trinity. We, we know that. <laughs> Trinity over here. Right, so, yeah. right. And so for him, his growing up years were completely different than the rest of us siblings. And so, you know, it's just one of those things that at my dad's funeral, there were a bunch of people from a number of different places, but a bunch of UPS people. And so as soon as you say, we bled brown and moved around, everybody in that, in that UPS audience shakes their head because, yeah. you know, while we didn't wear army green, right, we wore UPS brown and, you know, we, it was, you know, a badge of honor, I guess. Yeah. So you went to Purdue. What'd you, what was your 
focus of study. Forestry, forestry, oh, forest man. products, actually. So wood products. And um, so Purdue, more than anything else, while they had a big natural resources side, they had a small forest products thing. And so, you know, when I decided to go to Purdue, my dad said, oh, you like the outdoors. Why don't you, why don't you go there? I'd rather you go to a Big Ten school because I wanted to be a Jacques Cousteau guy, right? So I'm 58 years old. I grew up in the era of Jacques Cousteau being on TV and, you know, dolphins were like my favorite. So <laughs> consequently, I'm a big Miami Dolphins fan. And um, I feel sorry for you. Yeah. Well, you, a lot of yeah. heartbreak. Hey, we still have the only <laughs> undefeated team. That's right. That's true. And I will, I will hold on to that forever <laughs> until they're not anymore. He said, why don't you go to a Big Ten school? I said, all right, well, I can do that. Grace of God, Purdue accepted me. And then, you know, when you're in my first semester there, I'm saying, I'm going to be a forest ranger making $19,000 a year and we'll be lucky to find a job when I get out. And I thought, well, that's probably not me. And uh, <laughs> let's go and, back to the drawing board. Let's go back one. to the drawing board. So I said, okay, I can do the business side of forestry. And so that's how I got into that. And then as soon as I got out of school, I didn't really want to be in a uh, manufacturing furniture place, being a first line supervisor. Is that what was that your first job out of school? That would have been. Uh, I said, look, I'd rather work for like a warehouse or a Louisiana Pacific or somebody like that. And they only hired MBAs basically to be in their, in their marketing and sales areas. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. UofL accepted me right out of school in their MBA program. So I went down there, they gave me a full ride. Thank, again, thank goodness. And I was a, a graduate assistant there. So they were paying me, right? And so I thought, okay, well, I got the best of all worlds. And I started working with this, uh, started working with them. There was an assistant professor there from Brown Foreman who said, hey, I'm going to date you guys on this one. But maybe folks in your audience who remember Lotus 1, 2, 3, right? The precursor. I know the Lotus the, right? the OG. Yeah, yeah that, right? And the precursor to XL. And uh, they said, hey, I need somebody to come help me at Brown Foreman that wants to make 20 bucks an hour and knows Lotus. I said, I am your man. And uh, and so literally that's hey, how I- You and I, Kenny probably got a lot in common. He's a spreadsheet wizard. Funny enough, <laughs> it's like one of my first jobs out of college, actually it was one of my second or third jobs, whichever one it was, it was a Lotus shop. And so it was Lotus Notes and they had Lotus 1, 2, 3. And oh. I was like, this is killing me. Like, I feel like I went back in time when every time I have to open my email client. <laughs> So when Excel came about, I was like lost. I was like, you know, when we, we got replaced on Lotus, I'm like, well, what the hell? I don't know what the hell I'm doing on yeah. Excel. So start all over again. Got to start all over again, retrain myself. So you went to Brown Foreman to kind of just do some IT stuff. And then where'd the career progression go from there? So uh, I actually uh, went into brand management for a while. So there's a couple of people over there like Dana Allen. I don't know if you guys know Dana or Mimi Zanil. Over Brown Foreman. Uh, over Brown Foreman. They were in brand management. And I went to work with them. So we had Bush Mills and Blackbush were the brands that we were we were handling at the time. And this was 1986. And so, I'm assuming at that time in your life, you're like, this is pretty fun. I get to go work oh, on no, alcohol uh, brands. And, it, you, know. It, it, you know, it was great to be back in the kind of the supply end of things and work for a great company. I mean, Brown Form is a great company. If you, you look at what the Browns have done and to really generationally change and keep relevant and keep their brand and that company. I mean, it's a testament to them. But, you know, it was a great opportunity for me. And I was there for three years, left to join Capital Holding at the time, which is changed their name to Providian, then was bought by Aegon and so on and so forth. But great opportunity there. Fell into healthcare 
years later, and that's kind of how I came about sort of my money anyway to kind of do this. We'll talk about that a little bit, because I think that's an interesting thing to understand how people figure out how they progress in their career. Like nobody just stumbles into healthcare. Like what was <laughs> yeah. that? Like what was that thing that kind of like took you there? And what was the business opportunity? Fortune, fate or, or whatever. I ended up, my career originally was in human resources, right? So I began HR. I got hired on as an HR manager. We did a lot of work with hospitals. I did some consulting work for a while. And a lot of that work was around hospitals. And so a little company in Prospect, Kentucky, hired me as their human resource manager in healthcare, and they ran a home health company, so nurses and aides and things like that to the home. And this would have been 1994. I got into the healthcare space there with that company. We were in, I don't know, 11 different states, eight different states. All of home health is really logistics, getting one person from one home to the next in the most expeditious manner possible and making sure that you do your work efficiently and effectively so you can go on and make another visit. I was pretty good with that sort of stuff. And so the operations guy at that company said, hey, I need some help managing this. And so he brought me under his, his wing and he's still here in town, I believe, but brought me into his wing. I stayed there for a couple of years. And then Columbia HCA or Hospital Corporation of America called me up and said, hey, we need somebody down in Dallas to help run this billion dollar division for our company. And I said, OK, I think I can I can do that. Yeah. What's a, what's a few billion? Well, I mean, you know, and so we were in 20 different states, 40,000 employees in our division. So I got to do that for 2000 and two or three when, uh, 2002, when HCA decided to say, hey, all I want to do is hospitals, right? You guys remember Rick Scott? Uh, I don't know if you guys remember Rick I Scott do not. or not. Senator Rick Scott yeah. from Florida. Okay. So he used to run HCA. There were a number of different issues that were going on with HCA at that time with the government. Uh, Rick left, Tommy Frisk came back and said, hey, all I know is what I really want to focus on is hospitals. And so all of our various other divisions of the company, he got rid of, which mine was one of them. And so I sold those businesses to a number of different organizations. And I stayed on there for another couple of years doing uh, pricing for work for like Blue Cross Blue Shield or Humana or anybody like that to say, here's what you pay for a bed in a hospital. Right. And so I did that for a number of years. And then I got a call to do some consulting work on some home health companies. So I started doing that. I'm advising these folks on how to run their business. And I looked at myself in the mirror one day and said, well, shit, I'm just as smart as they are. Why don't I? You're why, telling them what to do. Why don't, uh, why, do don't, why don't I do this myself? And so me and a couple of other folks started our own company in 2006. Did that in, out in Nashville. And so we grew those companies you know, a couple of different times and just focusing on the home health sector, home health and hospice. Got yeah. You. Yep. So nurses and therapists to the home and taking care of end of life things. And so that got me to where I, I did that a couple of times. Then I formed another company in 2013 where we actually managed that work for like Humana, Aetna and Cigna and Anthem. And then uh, Anthem bought that company in 2021 from us. 
along the way, how in the hell I got into this, right? <laughs> so, um, what, so what was it specifically that they were, I guess, what was the service you were providing? Like, was it just purely lo- like a logistics platform or, or? Yeah, so no. So, I mean, you, I'm you just hired. Curious, yeah, yeah, you know, you hired people, right? So, again, it's with Anthem and Humana and that new company I had, they're really good at certain things, right? They can't, but they're not an expert in everything. And so what we did, we supplied the expertise to them to help manage anybody that needed care in the home. And so we managed those aspects of their members that were needing services in the home. You know, my son continues to work there to this day for Anthem and running, you know, helping run my old company. And so it was just those aspects that you're trying to help them manage through and, and make sure that what was said they what a provider said they were going to deliver in the home was what actually delivered. And so we did that for, for them for a number of years. And then they said, Hey, we'd like to have your company. And we said, all right, (laughs) (laughs) price price is right. Yeah. There's, there's my number, (laughs) but it it worked out great. Worked out great for, for everybody. I think it worked out well for them. They, They continue to enjoy the work that my company's doing for them. And how we got into the bourbon. So on the side, yeah, about the say, let's, so let's, let let's, me know I can so get you, into that. Yeah, how, do you, how do you transition to say like, okay, I got some money. Now what do I do with it? So back in 2006, when I started my original company, at the same time, uh, a couple of buddies of mine down in, in Franklin, Tennessee said, hey, why don't we, we love wine and spirits. Why don't we, why don't we do something? Well, hey, I know there's this Sam's Club that's got some space over there that they want to put in a wine and spirits store. Why don't we work with them? So we said, oh, yeah, sure, why not, right? And so we owned a retail store at a Sam's Club in 2006 down in Tennessee. Just like on a whim, thinking like, oh, we'll just go ahead and get into this business. Just, yeah, it was well, just a Tennessee's whim. a weird state. Like, just, just figure it out as you went. Yeah, so we didn't know any of that shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but but we, we got into it and said, okay, well, we think we can, we think we know what we're, we can do. We can pick wine and you know, find, find somebody to help manage it for because none of us partners knew what the hell we were doing. So we went and found somebody from a liquor store that we could bring in as a, as a manager and, and Joe did that for us. And so we owned it for a number of years. And then all of a sudden some legislative things came up in Tennessee around wine and grocery stores, right? Because prior to 2013, there was no wine in grocery stores. It was all through the liquor stores. And so that bill kept coming up and coming up, voted down and coming up and voted down. And we're like, well, these guys aren't giving up. Right. So, cause grocery stores were all behind getting wine in grocery stores. Right. Yeah. I was about had, to say that deeper pe- pockets than us. I was about to say the liquor stores are the ones that were like, no, 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 no. no, no. Exactly yeah, right. yeah. 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 And then, and then it eventually happened, but we saw the writing on the wall and we were attached to a Sam's club. You know, guess what? You're going to get replaced. And we said, well, okay, let's sell the business in which we did in 2011. Then two years later, it flipped over. But along the way you learn, well, you could only have one license in Tennessee at the time for a liquor store. So you couldn't own multiple liquor stores where you could get some, you know, buying power. You had to either be a huge liquor store or kind of struggled with case volume discounts and all that sort of stuff from the distributors. And so we said, well, look, the, the real action lies in the distributor side. Why don't, <laughs> why don't we do that? So in two, I love where that story's going right? to go. So in 2013, <laughs> we, we, we and a couple of other guys, uh, another partner of mine, opened a wine and spirits distribution company. And we did it with a beer partner because you had two licenses, 
again, prior to wine and grocery stores, you had a low gravity license and a high gravity license. High gravity license allowed you to sell high gravity beer and wine and spirits and uh, anything over 6% alcohol. So that law was changed in 2013 to where you only had to have one license to sell everything. The guy, the beer guy says, I don't know this shit that you guys are doing and you don't know what I do. And really they're different businesses. Beer distribution is very different from wine and spirits distribution. And we said, okay, let's split the company. We'll take the wine and spirits. You take the high gravity beer and the beers and away we go. And we did that. Again, I'm doing this all on the side, right? My healthcare company was the primary focus. And so I had somebody help manage that for us for a number of years. But I helped begin to bring in spirit brands and wine brands into the business and particularly focus on the spirit side. Went up and met with Steve and Paul at Yellowstone trying to get them to sign with me. I went up and signed, you know, looked at Corky and all those guys because they didn't have a distributor in Tennessee yet. So I was going after the craft guys, right? Because Everybody else was taken up. Tennessee's a franchise state, so once you're signed with that distributor, you're done, right? You're not going to get let go or anything like that. And so I did that. Rabbit Hole was my first bourbon brand from Kentucky, right? So Cave, we struck a great relationship. We started distributing Rabbit Hole in all of Tennessee for Cave, and then we did AT Laws and a number of the other big brands that we had at that time from a, a whiskey perspective. You know, six and 20. I don't know if you guys know those guys out of South Carolina. We had a number of them. And so built up that portfolio. And then uh, Cave and I, really good, fast friends. And he looked at me one day. He says, Wally, you got a, you got a story out there, right? You got a, a history. You know, half of that battle is having something to talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Half of selling right? whiskey is having a, having a marketing and, uh And he goes, Why don't you, you ought to do this yourself. And so he put that little seed back. You legitimately have an old granddad's right? <laughs> there you go. That's right. <laughs> and so he, had, he planted that little seed back there. And so when my business was doing so well in the healthcare side, I thought, and we were trying to get like a Tennessee brand in our distribution house. And we, again, franchise state. So once the distributor has that brand, you can't get it. So you can't, like in Kentucky here, I can go from RNDC to Heidelberg to Southern Glazer, no problem. There's always issues, but generally speaking, no problem. And Tennessee, you can. And so there wasn't any, I didn't have a Tennessee whiskey. And I thought, well, how in the hell am I, I'm a Tennessee distributor and don't have a Tennessee whiskey. What am I going to do? So I formed this other company called Log Still Distilling. And I went out and bought barrels of Tennessee whiskey. And I thought, okay, well, we'll come up with our own brand under that, bring that forward into the warehousing side, our distribution side, separate companies, separate ownership. But you can do that. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll be a non-distiller producer, go out and buy some Tennessee whiskeys, and then I'll have a Tennessee brand. And so I did that in 2017, went out and bought some barrels of Tennessee whiskey which you really actually see right here. Some of them. We'll have to open some. And then I went out and said, okay, well, that's pretty cool. Why don't I go? Because I met with some of the firm solution guys as well at some point in time. And yep, Shane and Pat. I worked on a relationship with them. And and then I began to think, well, why don't I go back into Kentucky, see that old distillery property of ours. I mean, you know, my dad was born and raised on and see what the heck's going on, right? It had been a while since I'd been back there. And uh, so I called my my aunt 
who lived across the street from the old distillery. And I said, do you know who owns that? The old distillery property? She goes, well, as a matter of fact, I delivered communion to his house yesterday. <laughs> right. And uh, I said, okay, well, can you put me in contact with him? And she did. It comes back to the Catholicism. It does. <laughs> I mean, really, and it was one of those God given things. Right. So I made contact with the owners of that J.W. Nally and his wife, which was, Estelle Dant Nally, and she had married a Dant, and uh, so that's like Kathleen's mm-hmm. mom, Charles's mom, and so you know I went down there and told the story of what I wanted to do with the distillery property, and they said, hey, as long as we can have our jobs that are here, cause they they owned the trust company, it was making roofing systems there, and in the old distillery property they were making roofing systems, and he goes, as long as we can keep these jobs local then great, you can have the property and let's talk about, we go about doing that. And so we worked on a plan in 20, March, 2019, basically I bought the old distillery property. A month later, I bought almost all the surrounding property around that. So we have 350 acres out there. Two months later, National Bourbon Day, we announced, hey, Log Steel Distillery is going to be here in Nelson County. What made you like take that leap is like, all right, I'm all in. <laughs> like, I'm not, you know, I'm not just going to like source barrels, put it, you know, my label on it or whatever. I'm I'm going to really make this like a heavy investment, a heavy investment in a, almost a legacy or maybe of your, uh, you know, I think that was really, it was, you know, we all grew up around our grandfathers, great grandfathers, whether it was the, the brand itself or the brands that they had in their companies, we all grew up around that. And so, and none of us, none of the Dant family was in the bourbon business, at least that we knew of anymore. Uh, the last one retired from Barton's back in the late 90s. And so for me, it was a really about bringing our name, that Dant name, uh, back into being a distiller again. That was really the kind of the driving force behind that. And while I thought we could be successful at it, really successful at it, it was more of the fact that I'd like to reestablish us as distillers again and being back in that business. And so, you know, I thank the Lord that ultimately that there is a brand out there called J.W. Dant, and it's been around since the 1830s when Joseph Washington Dant was 16 years old, by the way, in 1836, <laughs> established distilling in a hollowed out log. And so that's how we came about log still. Oh, was that name? And while, like you already answered that question for me. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to, yeah, it was one. a hollowed out poplar log, cut it in half, hollowed it out, banded it back together. He had copper tubing running up through it. Him and the Wathen family were kind of known for stilling on the log, as they said. And so making consistent product through that process, people liked it. And then he could form his own copper and built his own big distillery back in the 1860s in Dant, Kentucky. But you know, that brand survives today. While we don't own it, we're not affiliated with that brand, that J.W. Dant Distilled Spirits brand. I can't recount history. You know, I can't recant history. We did own it at one point in time. We sold it and very proud of how that brand has done through the years. And ultimately, we're forging our own path at Log Steel Distillery and making our own product and happy to say that today we'll be in making, and I don't know if this podcast goes on later, but today I can say we're cooking our first mash in the big production facility. 
it seems like you've really focused on rebuilding the community as well and like bringing life to that region of town. Where does that stem from or what was the inspiration for that? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. It seems like you've really focused on rebuilding the community as well and like bringing life to that region of town where does that stem from or what was the inspiration for that that community has been in in our a part of our blood for 200 some odd years we came over in the late 1700s and it was a vibrant community for many many years distilling in essence there was 11 distilleries within six miles of our distillery today Right, There were three that were right there in Gethsemane, Kentucky. Pre-prohibition distilling industry in that area was it, right? I mean, everybody, practically speaking, worked in the distilling industry. And all of these towns were all grew up around that. And while there was a big farming community necessarily that helped support all the grain production and things like that, that industry was distilling. And so once that went away prohibition you know everybody scrambling like crazy to figure out what the hell they were going to do so moonshining liquor running you know you, you name it that all went on not kid ourselves about how people survived out there and then post prohibition our distillery the Danton Head distillery and the old JW Dant distillery were the only two of the 11 to begin production again while our distillery had you know ultimately had 200 jobs it closed in 1962 so when you look at the community and you see 200 jobs just go poof right overnight that really impacts everybody and then over the years you see ultimately you see that community that you knew and love and grew up around begins to decay because there's no jobs for kids right so where do they got to go they go to go big to the bigger cities and you begin to see the influence of 
meth and all of that into the, those small, tiny communities because people are trying to survive at some point in time. And while I, I don't condone any of that, they're all trying to figure out a way through. And so what we wanted to do as a family uh, was really kind of build up that community. You you grew up in Culvertown, right? Yep. Or Howardstown. Or Howardstown, yep. Well, you know, south of the Beach Fork, right? No hope for new hope. Right. I mean, you, you, you heard it all the time. And so we said, hey, we're going to put, purposely put our distillery. It would have been easier for me to put the distillery in Bartstown or Lebanon, right? Where there was infrastructure, there was all of this infrastructure to be able to, to handle our size. But I didn't do that. I wanted to build it in that community. I wanted to bring back good paying jobs. I wanted to build that place back up. It was purposeful as to why we did it there. We wanted tourism to come and begin to spend dollars. And so when you begin to do that, you hopefully begin to build back a community that was once a thriving place. Yeah. Cool story. Uh, real quick was somebody, one of my family said that you may have bought like a gas station and been closed forever or, so, or a general store or a gas station. You're like, well, it, people are going to come. They got to have something to, you know, <laughs> you got to fill their tanks somehow. <laughs> right, do something. And I thought that was really just so cool. You know, my family invested in a, in a gas station there along with another family there in, in New Hope. To take it from, it used to be a community center, right? People used to come in, the old timers used to come in, have a breakfast sandwich in the morning and coffee, sit around the table and talk, and that went away. And so now they're back to doing that again. And so, you again, you just develop these, these places for people to come and congregate and really feel a sense of community. And that's what that really entire campus is really geared towards. So I want to kind of roll back a little bit as we were talking about the Dant name and how it was sold off a little bit. So back in March of 21, Heaven Hill filed a lawsuit against Logstill, basically saying that was trademark infringement, unfair competition. And then a few months later, the judge granted a release and, and saying a motion for a preliminary injunction mm -hmm. saying that the steps that Logstill had to make. Did that first off like take you by surprise or did you think like... Oh, we're getting into this, like Heaven Hill's going to have something to say. I had conversations with Max on a number of different occasions about what our plans were out there. So they were well aware of what we were, we were doing. And you can certainly read testimony. There's it's all public information. I don't, they, they just didn't like the fact that my name was J.W. Dan. Um, <laughs> Thank you for being born, J.W. Well, Walt. you know, it, it is what it is. We were very cognizant of that. We hired... I had trademark attorneys look at all of our stuff. It's not like I wasn't aware of what we were doing. And we took steps to make sure that we tried not to infringe upon their trademark. And while the judge asked us to make some changes, I can still use my name, right? We can still use our name. We still can call our campus Dan Crossing. And we just have to do certain things. So I have a disclaimer out there that says Logstill Distillery neither owns nor is affiliated with the J.W. Dant Distilled Spirits. And we'll continue to have that disclaimer until whenever. Did you ever <laughs> approach Heaven Hill and say, let me buy that label off you? I had conversations with Max from the very beginning. They're very proud of the fact that they grow brands. Have you been to the label room? Oh, gosh. It's, it's 4,000 different whiskey labels. And right? I don't think I mean, I've seen half of them in, I don't know, in my lifetime. Well, so. I, I mean, and he collects them. I, I'm not, <laughs> and, um, I like and, that. You know, and so, and good for them. I mean, they've done some great things with many of their product lines out there and their brands. But did we have a conversation? I had a conversation. I mean, again, that's all public record. I had a conversation about that. 
I'm new, right? I'm new back into the distilling industry. I've never, until we began this whole thing, I never distilled bourbon before. They don't know me from Adam. I'm sure they've been approached by many people about many different brands over the course of time. And so you have some of that you have to get through and power through and for people to understand that, you know, I'm, Hey, I'm serious. I'm, I'm serious about who we are and what we are, we're trying to do and who our company is trying to be. And while we were asked to make changes by the judge and we fully comply with what he's asked us to do, we're moving ahead. This is our brand. It's Monk's Road. You see it in front of you outside of the fact that my signature's on the back of it. You have to put that disclaimer after you sign a bottle, but like, this is my name is Wally Dan, but I am not affiliated with it. I need to just come with stickers attached to it or something like that. Rubber stamp it. Rubber stamp it. Whatever it is. (laughs) Did the monks try to see you too after? (laughs) No, no, the monks didn't try to do that. That's a beautiful place if anybody hasn't. You got to explain the background because there's probably a lot of people that don't know know about it. Yeah, so Gethsemane, I mean, you'll probably correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a Trappist monk community where. A lot of famous Catholics, Thomas Merton, mm-hmm. Richard Rourke, a lot of great Catholic monks, priests have gone there to help. You know, they do a lot of stuff for the community, like building things, putting things together. But it's also a retreat for priests, but also lay people. Like lay, we can go if we want to go do a retreat there. Uh, growing up as a kid, we'd go there for retreats. So it's, but it's a really beautiful community in the rolling hills, the forest, where you can really escape from reality and like just like be yeah. one with that area. Yeah, they've got over 3,000 acres out there, wooded forest, walking trails, just to... And they make some of the best bourbon balls, too. And they, they make damn good bourbon balls, and fruitcake is kind of what they do now. Again, a dant donated the original land that the Abbey sits on. And so it's a forefather of mine, and they actually donated it to the Sisters of Loretto to build a girl's school back in the... I think the uh, 1820s. And so when, and I'm thinking about brands, I'm sitting there looking at a map and I'm thinking about all our history out there and I th- see Monk's Road and I'm like, well, damn, that'd be a pretty cool name. And then we are associated with that property. And while we didn't donate it to the Trappist, you know, the Sisters of Loretto did, we're still tied to that history in that area. And I thought, well, that'd be a cool name to have on a, on a bottle would be Monk's Road. Right on. And so that represents our Kentucky spirits is that Monk's Road. And I see where it says fifth district series. What does that mean? On the so that's the taxing districts before all of those little federal offices and all the distilleries closed down. It was the fifth district. Gotcha. And so it was our way of saying this is a sourced bourbon. So anything you see with a fifth district on it will be sourced bourbons for us and or whiskeys. And it was our way of saying Hey, for this distillery that went away, which is Cold Spring Distillery, which was started by J.B. Dant, uh, son of Joseph, the oldest son of Joseph Washington Dant, Joseph Bernard Dant was his name. That property, Cold Spring Distillery, is on our property. So literally across the street from where our distillery exists today is the Cold Spring. So we actually actually hooked that water, made a well pumping station to do finishing water on our barrels and our proofing on our bottles out of that Cold Spring that's where that distillery was. And so he began Yellowstone brand in that distillery. So it was a way for us to tie in, again, the history of our area into that fifth district, taxing district, and pay honor other distilleries that have gone away. So I guess the other question that I have about it is, you had a history already in sourcing whiskey and trying to find the Tennessee brand. Mm-hmm. You, know, you kind of created Monk's Road, started sourcing. 
And then what made you say, you know what, let's go ahead, let's go all in, let's build the distillery, let's build a team around this. And it could have just said like, maybe we'll just source forever. What made you want to just go ahead and bite the bullet there? I guess it's usually the, what they call it a $15 million question or $20 million yeah, question. Yeah, you yeah, start, yeah, start doing yeah, all that. A hell of a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at least for me. <laughs> how much money did you start with? Before, <laughs> and then how much do you have now? Right, right, uh, yeah, it's a lot less. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can tell you that. I made a conscious decision from the, once I made the decision to buy the distillery property, right? We knew we had to have, and I just didn't want to come out with white spirits, you know, and survive for four years off of white spirits because you announce on National Bourbon Day in 2019 and then you go dormant for four years. We really didn't want to do that. So the only alternative we had and while we were laying barrels down from a contract perspective, again, those weren't going to be ready yet, was to go out and source brown liquor. And so that's what I did. I went out and we found some excellent brown liquor that we could sell that we that we felt was representative of our family. And while I can't say this is bottled and bond, I tried to make it as close to bottled and bond as we possibly could. It's kind of one season, 100 proof, it changed distillery, so therefore you can't call it BIB. But we wanted to do that and represent, you know, what our family has been doing for years in that, whether it was, again, my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, my great-great-great-grandfather. That's what we were known for is that kind of that we were one of the early adopters of BIB as a family and, um, and felt it was something that we wanted to do first. And so that's why you see it at hundred proof. What's the legacy that when you're distilling, I mean, we talk about today as we're recording, it's the first mash that's being actually dropped today. So it's a pretty remarkable day for you. So So congratulations yeah. on that. And then uh, you'll be distilling here in the next few days with it. Uh-huh. What do you plan on how your whiskey will be different? Do you have like, what kind of thought processes went into saying, oh, we've, we're going to get this type of still, we're going to do this type of grain, we're going to do whatever. Like, what was that process and, and kind of what's your, what's so, your state? So like the whole campus was organized in a way to where we thought we could replicate what was made at the old distillery. So we know the mash bills that were made there great-grandfather took meticulous notes in his journals around his mash bills. So we know what was he made there. We know the yeast source, what was made there, right, from a yeast perspective. We know that. And then we have a lake out there, which is what the old distillate came off of, was all that lake. And so we've got those three elements in place at our new distillery that we can effectively make what was made there for 90 some odd years. And so that I think will make us a little more unique in terms of what we're producing there because we can do what was once done there. I think that's probably the most exciting thing I can tell you is that we've got all of those elements. I've got all a bunch of the old bourbon that was made there, right? So at the end of the day, we're going to be able to taste test against each other to see whether, you know, it tastes like the old distillate. I think we're pretty excited about doing that and being able to tell that story outside of the old distilleries that are still doing their their stuff today. There's not a whole lot that can come back and say, yeah, well, we took the old one and we're kind of making it new again. And that's, that's what we're, that's what we're doing. 
Well, I hope we're the first phone call in 2026 to say, hey, guys, the bourbon's ready. You want to come taste the old stuff and the new stuff? You can come down annually if you want to begin to to taste out of there. (laughs) Sounds good. So the last thing I want to kind of talk about is most people, they go and they build a distillery and they focus everything on the whiskey and maybe making the tour experience. You said, we're going to go beyond that. We're going to build an amphitheater and we're going to bring in these big names and have weekend concerts all the time. Kind of talk about... Is this like a, a roots to Nashville for you, where you kind of see like live music as being a big connection to it? As we're building our first building, that tasting room building that we we call the ta- affectionately called the tasting room, I guess, and it's got our full bar in there, and kind of the way we designed it to be open to the patio and things like that. And I'm sitting out there looking and thinking, thinking of other ways for us to connect with bourbon lovers and/or families, and thinking about my time in in Nashville and how accessible Nashville is to to music, really great music, right? Whether you like rock and roll or country or anything else, Nashville has all of that. And generally speaking, you pay, maybe pay a cover and maybe you don't, it's all free and they have great venues. And so I thought, well, can we do that in Gethsemane, Kentucky? And so I'm looking out at the back of that tasting room, looking down at my old distillery ruins that are sitting down there near the railroad tracks. And it's so our tasting room's up on top of the hill and then the distillery ruins are all kind of at the bottom of the hill near the railroad tracks. And I look at it and say, wouldn't that, that's a pretty amazing spot for an amphitheater. Why, why can't we do that? So I got with my architect and began to design it. And then I said, well, how do we attract major acts to come up here? And so... Uh, I had a really good friend of mine in in Nashville that was in the record industry for years. And so I contacted him and it was actually my assistant's brother. And she's been with me for almost 20 years now. And so we began talking and we said, okay, well, we need some expertise around how to build sound and light and stage around attracting these artists to come here to us. And so got with a number of folks out of Nashville to help design that for us and put together that 2,000 seat intimate setting to where you can come and sit no further than 50 yards away from that stage and have that interaction with the music guests that we have. And they have the same thing with 2,000 people that are sitting there. There's this energy that you can really develop through that intimacy. And I think everybody that's been there that's played for us, you know, says, Hey, we'd love to come back. And when you hear people say that, then I think we're doing something right. And what you're doing at the same time is you're building a great memory for somebody. What they're going to do with that is they're going to say, Hey, I want to go back again. And so that was kind of the thought process around our campus in general was how do we build these things to create a great memory because people will come back because they had a great time. And so as opposed to traditional distilling industry, you go in, put your fingers in the mash tub for the first time, and then you do it two or three different times, and you go, well, I've done that. Maybe I don't want to do it anymore, or I'm going to go somewhere else where I haven't done it before. We want people to come back and come back to our place again and again. And so you've got to build things that create those experiences for your guests. So that's why we got bed and breakfast. That's why we've got that fishing lake. I stocked that thing. And while we're going to pull distillate out there, there's great fishing in there. That's why we're working with the Kentucky Railway Museum on bringing trains in to our place to drop people off at the distillery, take a ride on a train, drop off at the distillery. 
have an experience at our restaurant. When you can begin to do those things, stay overnight on a train car, you create something that nobody else has created. And ultimately, people go, I want to go back there because one, I didn't get to experience everything I wanted to experience, but two, I had a great time. And it ties back to that area. I mean, pretty rural. And mm-hmm. every time I go to my grandmother's, we didn't have cable or we don't even have Wi-Fi down there. No. So it's, right. it's one of the best times because you, it's like one of the only times you can disconnect. But when we go do squirrel camps or deer camps or four-wheeler rides, where do we all end up? We all end up in some holler. Somebody's got a guitar picking, mm-hmm. you know, and you're just hanging around with your friends, family, drinking, listen to, you know, the music. It's a, a cool part about that area. People talk about it all the time. When they come to our place, they go, it's just like a field party. Yeah. I mean, it's just like a field party. We feel like this is just like a field party we used to all have. And so when you can create that. Maybe a little less cops, but yeah. <laughs> That's right. We do have security there. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's going, run, run. <laughs> That's right. You know, knock on wood, who haven't had any incidences out there. <laughs> well, Wally, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, really sharing your story and your history, your connections and, and what you're building. I think it's incredible. It's fascinating. It's really, really awesome to see and encourage everybody to go and, and check it out. Now that you got product laying down, you're going to have a lot of cool things that it can go and people can experience and visit and kind of see what the place has to offer. Well, Kenny, Ryan, thank you guys yeah. for, for having me here and allowing us to be a part of, of what you're building. I, I yeah. think you guys are doing a great job and Looking forward to what you're doing in the future. Yeah, not I, I can't thank you enough. I, like we said before the show and meeting you, it's been it's just so cool. It's a area I grew up around. I'm so passionate about and love that for people to be able to have something to come and visit that. Like I grew up around it, it almost gives me goosebumps. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it's like I feel you choking up a little bit yeah, over here. I just <laughs> it's such a cool place, and I, I just want more people to see it. Yeah. So if people want to know more about Logstill, about Monk's Row, about Wally Dan. How do they go and find out more about you and follow you and all those good things? So logstilldistillery.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram. I think we have a TikTok account that'll be kicking <laughs> up here soon. So everybody's working on that, right? Everybody's now. working. I, I, I will not do certain things. On TikTok. <laughs> that's right. Not yet. Not yet. We'll that's find right. out. We'll find out. Well, Wally, I want to say thank you again for coming on the show. Make sure you follow Logstill, everything Monks Row. Go and check it out. Go check out their whiskey. We reviewed it, I think, on a Whiskey Quickie at some point, too. Yeah, see, we reviewed it, so it's good I, I stuff. Waited. I, I nervously waited. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. It was good. And this gin is really good, too. Yeah, we actually tried some of their barrel-aged gin while we were sitting here. It's like, you know, it's we started recording this at 11 o'clock in the morning. Like, we'll start off with clear spirits. We'll move yeah. to the whiskey yeah, right after the dark stuff. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> after lunch. <laughs> after lunch. <laughs> But make sure you follow them, follow Bourbon Pursuit on all your socials. But with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next week.